You're listening to Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we talk about emerging technologies, user behavior, and how to design better digital experiences. This episode was published on Thursday, the 17th of March, 2016. Coming up in this episode, I talk to Louisa Heinrich, the founder of agency Superhuman and chief strategy officer of Design Talent, about design education, her own career in digital, and the etiquette of robot user experiences. We also have a user story, all about taking FaceTime calls on the top of a London bus. Welcome everyone. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of Mex, and I am flying solo on this episode. Uh, Alex Guest, my regular co-host, will be uh, joining us again for future episodes, but this time you just have me to keep you company. So before we get started, uh, I wanted to remind everyone that there are always detailed show notes to accompany each episode of the podcast. And you can find those at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. And we really try to go to some lengths to make sure that we include links to all of the different apps and services which get discussed. Uh, things like the previous MEX talks and essays that we reference so that you can use those as a jumping off point to go and explore all of the interesting stuff which comes up in the conversations. I'd also like to talk a little bit about the MEX event because, of course, uh, this week, uh, in fact, on the day that this uh, episode is coming out, would have been when we were running our MEX 16 event in London originally. Um, but as uh, most of you will know, um, we have moved the event to the 12th and 13th of October. Uh, suffice to say, it was not an easy decision and came about because of some circumstances uh, outside of our control. Um, but the one thing which really drove it was that for us, the most important thing with MEX, and this has always been the case going right back to when we started doing this in 2004, was the desire to be able to provide a really great event experience to everyone participating. That was the motivation behind doing it as an independent event and setting it up ourselves and making sure that we had full control over all aspects from the venue to the people who were going to be invited to speak and the way in which we, we ran the days. Uh, and that's something that I've always felt very strongly about. And it just felt this time that if we were to run it on those original dates, we weren't going to be able to deliver uh, that experience to the quality that we wanted to be able to and that Mex, I hope, has become known for. Uh, so we took that decision to move the dates. And uh, of course, you can't just move it by a week or two because people have to plan their schedules in advance. So we have moved it to uh, October. And I should say a big thank you to everyone who has been involved with that, who obviously we were in touch with in advance to talk to them about the changes and have been incredibly supportive all the people who are going to be participating and speaking and sponsoring and supporting the event uh, were hugely supportive of the decision 
And that made a big difference in making sure that we know we can make that change and deliver the best possible experience when we come to do it in October. So thank you to everyone in the community uh, for their efforts with that. And we're very much looking forward to sharing more about what we've got planned for the event in the build up to it in October. So what else has been going on in uh, the MEX community since I was last in front of the microphone? Well, last night uh, I was at the Finnish Embassy for an interesting event which was hosted by the Finnish Ambassador uh, and done with Marcus Hole, who some of you will remember from uh, the talk that he gave at a previous MEX event. Now, Marcus is someone who has led user experience within uh, Orange, the operator, and prior to that, uh, O2 as well. And his last MEX talk focused on some of the challenges of delivering user experience improvements at scale within those kind of large organizations and provided some really interesting insights. Now, he has recently... um, joined Helen, which is a uh, Finnish uh, service design and customer experience agency uh, that is opening a studio in London, and he's been appointed the CEO of that uh, London studio. So they put on an event last night to um, uh, have an uh, official uh, opening of the London studio and did that at the the Finnish embassy, uh, which is interesting to see the the new direction he's going off in. In other news, um, we're seeing more and more of those uh, acquisitions uh, and M&A activity that I've alluded to in previous podcasts uh, and how this is starting to play out among uh, agencies all over the the world. Uh, And there's a a guy called John Mader, who is a design partner at the venture capital firm in Silicon Valley, um, KCPB, uh, to give it its um, its acronym, uh, one of the, the best-known venture capital firms uh, and quite forward-thinking in appointing um, a, a partner from the design industry. And he, last year, put together quite a comprehensive presentation deck, which he called Design in Tech, which tracked uh, a lot of the M&A activity that was going on, the motivations behind it, what it means for the technology business, and why big tech companies, uh, why management consultancies are all looking to buy agencies which have got user-centered design skills. Uh, Just this week, he has released the 2016 version of that, which you can find by searching the hashtag design in tech. Uh, it's been pretty widely distributed, so I'm sure you won't have any difficulty finding it, but I'll also include a link in the show notes as well. And I'd urge you to take a look because this is one of the macro trends which is going on within the agency world at the moment, some people who are involved in uh, design. And there are some extremely interesting uh, trends that he picks up on in that. Uh, Of course, it's a subject which is close to my own heart as well, uh, and I'm spending uh, a considerable portion of my time at the moment in conversations related to that on people on both the side being acquired and those who are interested in making the acquisitions. Um, There are some thoughts that I've published on this previously from a few different angles, which I'll link to again in the, the show notes. The most recent piece uh, is one which um, looks at uh, the kind of motivations behind those uh, those acquisitions, as well as providing some examples and some insights from people who are in, involved in the, the agency world as well. Uh, and there's another which looks at the kind of ideal model for uh, design agencies and, and those who um, 
are looking to establish these kind of businesses over the longer term uh, and maybe um, aren't yet ready to, to sell. Um, so take a look at those. Uh, links will be in the show notes as always. And now for a bit of news about the podcast itself. We are going to move to a weekly schedule as a bit of an experiment. Originally, the idea was to release episodes every fortnight, but uh, we're finding that actually there is a huge amount of interesting stuff to talk about and interesting people to come on as guests for the, the podcast as well. So we're going to give it a try releasing things weekly. And there's already quite a lineup of interviews to look forward to. So coming up in the not-too-distant future, you can expect to hear conversations uh, that I've had with Dr. Mike Short, uh, who is the VP of Public Affairs at Telefonica, someone I've known for a great many years and always had interesting conversations with about the role of design within the mobile telecoms business. Uh, There's also a discussion with Timo Ahopelto, who is a partner at Lifeline Ventures, a venture capital firm specializing in mobile and healthcare and gaming, which has just raised another fund of about 60 million euros to invest across a wide range of different startups. And again, always with that focus on the importance of user-centered design in their portfolio. And we talk a little bit about how that guides their investment strategy and what that might mean for startups. Then we have a discussion as well with Ramona Liberoff, uh, who many of you will remember from sessions that she's been involved with at MEX in the past. Uh, and she's now the CEO of the Spring Accelerator, which is an organization that works with teenage girls to help fund and mentor uh, businesses, particularly in areas uh, like Africa, uh, to help them understand uh, and get technology businesses um, off the ground. Uh, and giving back to their community. So plenty of interesting discussions to look forward to coming up. Uh, and as I say, hopefully we'll be releasing these now weekly. So keep an eye on uh, your podcast player for the uh, the latest episodes. Uh, and do please share them with your friends as well. So uh, you can do that by um, sharing mobileuserexperience.com and pointing them to the podcast section. Uh, And also we're pretty well distributed now in most podcast players. So if you ask people just to search for Mech's Design Talk, then they should be able to find us. Uh, And of course, if you are enjoying what you're listening to, do please go along to iTunes and give us a five star review because that bumps the podcast up the ratings uh, and helps other people to discover it organically as well. Now, we're going to move on to my interview this week which is with Louisa Heinrich. Uh, Now, Louisa is another person who I'm sure many of you will know from when she's been involved with MEX. She uh, has facilitated sessions and she has spoken at the event on several occasions as well. Louisa is the real deal when it comes to public speaking. She's someone who will stand up in front of an audience with no notes and hold them pretty well spellbound for the duration of her session. And her theme is always around this idea of how technology is becoming integral to our lives, to our physical environment, and particularly this intersection between artificial intelligence 
uh, and user experience and increasingly how that is starting to have an influence on uh, what we might call robotic devices. And we get into a bit of a discussion about how broad a term that is, because we're not just talking about the kind of anthropomorphic robots that you might imagine from science fiction films here, but essentially what happens once there is a sense that the technology devices around us have got some kind of autonomy or they can move themselves uh, and the kind of impact that might have on the way in which we need to design them. So that's all part of the discussion as well. Uh, her roles currently include being the founder and CEO of her own design agency called Superhuman, which uh, helps clients particularly around those kind of topics that Louisa is interested in, uh, and also chief strategy officer at Design Talent, which is uh, a new um, organization that kind of spans management consulting and recruitment to make sure that uh, companies can get staff in who have got uh, real design thinking skills and bring them into the organization. Uh, So here's the chat with Louisa, and uh, I hope you enjoy what ended up being a, a fascinating conversation for me personally. Hey, Louisa, how are you doing? Good, thanks. How are you? Very well, but a little puzzled as to how best we can describe this topic for our listeners, because I'm conscious that this has the potential to be quite esoteric if you're not living and breathing this world as I know you do. Um, so, I mean, what broadly are we talking about here? We've got this working title of the etiquette of robot experiences, but what is it we actually mean by that? So from my perspective, I think it's, uh, first of all, it's a matter of how we define the word robot. You say robot and people immediately think of either R2-D2 or the Terminator, I guess, on the bad side. People think of these relatively anthropomorphic things that exist either in factories or in science fiction. Um, My definition of robot for these purposes is a bit broader. It's uh, anything that uses artificial intelligence that can have uh, a direct impact on the physical world. So something that can do something in the physical world, but is driven by artificial intelligence. And uh, there's already a lot, a lot of that stuff in the world, even in the consumer-facing world. And my concerns are that um, the way that we go about designing these things today, we're not thinking about, uh, we're not thinking about necessarily all of the factors that contribute to whether or not these robots make a positive impact on our life or whether they just make things more challenging or difficult or creepy. That bit that you mentioned there about the physical impact that they have, I mean, that for me has always been a key difference here because clearly there's a lot going on around artificial intelligence and machine learning and how that's uh, applied within, if you like, digital services which exist within the virtual space. Uh, But what I think is perhaps crucial to this particular question is how that impact changes and I think in many ways becomes magnified when these start becoming actors that can interfere with our physical environment and how that changes the uh, intensity, if you like, of the need around designing these things to provide good experiences. Exactly. And and moreover, so if if you take the idea of them impacting our physical world, together with the idea that a lot of these things don't have screens, we wind up with a, uh, potentially a quite 
asymmetrical feedback loop, if you like. Uh, you have the you have the potential for physical places to become mysterious because of the because of the robots that are acting in them. So, take for example a Nest thermostat, which is a great example of a robot in this context. It it changes your physical world. It changes the temperature of your home, and yet it has no. It doesn't have the same complex screen interface that we're used to on our mobiles or on our tablets or on our laptops or on our televisions, and uh, and so the choices that it takes to raise or lower temperature to 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 its mind to maximize your energy consumption, optimize your energy consumption, not maximize. Um, those might look really mysterious to the person who actually lives in the home, and you don't necessarily want to live in a mysterious place. So how can we how can we make the design of these objects that don't speak to us in the way that we're used to technology speaking to us? How do we design them in such a way that they help us and that it is clear to us what their what their role is in our worlds and what we should expect from them? It's interesting that you mentioned the word mystery there. I mean, thinking back to when you came and spoke about this at our MEX event, I remember you started your talk going back into some of the history around these kind of mechanical actors and this idea of these autonomous objects and beings that might have an influence on users' lives going way back in in history. I mean, is that where the roots of your interest in this came from, or is that something which came later once you started to get into designing for this area? Oh, God, see, now that's an impossible question for me to answer, both. Um... I mean, I, I didn't study design. I studied uh, theater and anthropology at university. And so I've always been very interested in, uh, in the stories that we tell ourselves to explain the world around us and the metaphors that we use to understand uh, the things that are not immediately comprehensible to the layperson. And uh, as such, I've always been interested in science, in the, in the sciences. I've also always been interested in mythologies, uh, which I think are kind of two, science, two sides of the coin. These are the ways that we understand and explain the world around us. Um, and I've also always been interested in how things work. And I suppose that was the bit that took me into uh, the digital design world, was that I was always a tinkerer and a hacker from childhood onward. And understanding how things worked and why they worked that way was what led me toward design. Um, but it's a beautiful close to the loop if you look at kind of the broader the broader motivations behind human response. How have we responded historically? What are the deep-seated uh, needs or levers that can move us? You start, to, you start to see some broader patterns that can be quite interesting, even though they might be, I suppose, rather deeply buried in our memories. And seemingly quite universal as well. I mean, I remember you were citing references from Indian history, Jewish history, Norse mythologies, and they all seem to have elements of that idea that there could be these entities within life which were slightly mysterious and yet kind of helped us with our, our day-to-day. So clearly that's something which across all kinds of different cultures, all kinds of different climates and parts of the world, uh, that's obviously something which has had a powerful motivation for people over the years. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it stands to reason when you think about it. It's, uh, I mean, the idea of creating something in our own image, if you like, that then helps us. It's, it's, a, it gives us the power of the gods, if you like. And, and these stories that I cited in the talk were all from world mythology. So the golems in, in Hebrew mythology, 
Um, Hephaestus in Greek mythology had robots of various kinds, uh, automated things that had their own intelligence. Um, there are also examples in Indian and also in Chinese mythology, uh, mythological emperors with, with robot armies, that kind of thing. Um, this idea that we could have these mechanical creatures or these, these animate but not human creatures that would do our bidding, that's a, that's a pretty deep-seated human thing. It's, it, speaks to our, it speaks to our desire for something that behaves in a very expected way, something that we can have control over, something that makes our lives easier. It speaks to both, uh, both positive and negative levers, I think, in the human psyche. And you see that stuff playing out. I mean, maybe this sounds a bit esoteric, but you see that stuff playing out in the way that we design these things, in the things that we design. Let's go back just a little bit, because I'm intrigued by, if you like, the, the steps which kind of end up connecting you into where you are now with this. Because I think a lot of people, certainly within the MEX community, will know you from talks like this one that you did last year all about uh, the etiquette of robot experiences. And I know you speak quite widely around the world on this topic broadly of uh, how people engage with these kind of entities, what it's going to mean in their lives. But you described yourself there as a, a tinkerer and a hacker from an early age. And if you think about design, most people, I suppose, still come down, I suppose, what you could call the traditionally sort of visual and graphic route or the industrial design route to get into this area in the first place. But it sounds like you took a rather different path. I mean, was there a moment at which, thinking back, you kind of knew that you were going to get into what we now broadly call digital experience design? No, not really. I, 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 if I'm totally honest, I, I think I kind of slid into it sideways. I mean, I'm a bit older than, than a lot of the, than a lot of the designers at, in the Mex community. Um, and at the time that I was at university, I finished in 1992. There was no such thing as digital design. I mean, there was, there was some, there were some universities that had, that had some very early sort of HCI education. Um, there was, of course, graphic design. But, uh, but there was no such thing as the sort of interaction design, information design stuff that we all do now or that we, that we hold core to the, the digital design disciplines. I, uh, I was always interested in that stuff, but from a, from sort of a hobbyist's perspective. And uh, I, my first job in digital came, I don't know, I suppose about six years after I am, um, about five, five or six years after I, I finished uni. Uh, when I was offered a role as a project manager in what was then called a multimedia company. And at the time, project managers did essentially everything except write the code and cut the graphics. And so that included all the stuff that we now think about as project management, but also all the things that we now think of as interaction design, information architecture, um, the prototyping, the concepting, all of that stuff. And, uh, and I found myself really... I took the job because... I was interested, I think, in what, what these people were doing. I didn't realize that these companies existed doing what they were doing. I'd been living in the world of theater and music and to some degree marketing, I suppose. Uh, and I took the job because I was interested and I quickly found that I was completely fascinated by it. And, and so I was kind of, I started in the digital design realm before it was particularly well developed. There was, we still didn't have titles yet like information architecture, interaction designer, those came along later. And as the industry evolved, I was already inside it. So it was sort of that 
I suppose the frog in water. I didn't really realize that I was inside an industry that was developing until, I don't know, about 2002, three, after the first dot-com crash, that we all kind of looked around and thought, hey, okay, we made a mess, but we also made some things that were, that were worthwhile and that are worth pursuing. It was then that I think I realized that I, that I, that we had real careers and real trajectories and real things to say and do in the world. Until then, it was sort of making it up as we went along and trying to figure out the best ways of doing things because there were no set patterns. So at that time, I mean, I guess we're broadly talking here, sort of late 90s to the early 2000s. As you say, you've got the dot-com crash going on. You've got a business which, within the digital sphere, was broadly about building websites for people, essentially. You know, that was the, the big client driver was, we need a website, which is kind of crazy to think back to now. But, you know, that that was the, um, you know, the, the big motivating factor. But did you have any sense at that time that the sort of things which, if you like, were your sort of hobby interests or things which came from university around the idea of acting and anthropology and, and how those things might then play out in the physical world. Did you have any sense that that was going to be something that you could join up with your uh, career in what was the, the emerging digital industry, if you like, at the time? Um, I would love to say that, yes, I had a, I had a conscious sense of that, but, uh, but I think it was more a, an unconscious drawing on it. So if you think about it, I mean, anthropology is about understanding what drives humans, what has driven us over our history. My particular speciality in, in anthropology is um, comparative mythology, so the stories that we tell to explain our worlds. And theatre is all about telling stories and setting performances and setting stages. And if you apply that to the digital world, it's very much what we were doing at the time. I mean, on the, on the, Andy, the website side, what you were basically doing was taking an organisation and putting them on this new stage that was the magical interwebs and, uh, and giving them a place there and giving them performance, a website, a way of demonstrating who they were. And we were also, the company that I worked for, were also involved in some of the very early um, digital services that were mostly business to business. So we did a project with a big pharmaceutical company that was all about joining up their global market research. And, uh, and we did a project with uh, a medical association, a massive medical association that was all about joining up various um, healthcare institutions around the United States. And these were, uh, these were sort of deeper, more complex issues that, I don't know, I mean, we didn't, it, it, we didn't have the kinds of tools and methods that we have today to tackle these things. So a lot of the people I worked with were people who were philosophy majors or advanced mathematics majors, things like that. And we would apply our the critical thinking skills that we'd learned at uni in these, I guess, somewhat weird today degree programs and uh, apply them to this domain and use them to help us address the problems that our clients were bringing to us. So I suppose, uh, I, I don't know that I consciously had a moment of, ah, yes, I can use this training to do this work. We just did it. So thinking back to that time, did you have any 
influences among the kind of early firms that were getting to grips with this. I mean, it, it's strange to think about now where yeah, everyone and their uncle is uh, a user experience designer of some kind, and we all uh, call ourselves design agencies, um, you know, sometimes conjuring this up sort of almost out of nowhere. But were there any kind of go-to guys that you had in that period, uh, the, the early 2000s, where the, you really felt that they were some of the ones defining um, those early roles? Well, sure. I mean, the there were some of the big names were already out there. I mean, and some of them are gone now. There was uh, both Scient and Sapient, but uh, uh, the, the the big names were I mean, the Razorfish was was defining what it was like, to, what, what great visuals looked like um, on the internet. Uh, gosh, I'm now drawing a blank on what they were called. There was a company that was that was really well known for their for their information design, information architecture. Um, there were already some emerging leaders at that time, but then, especially in the sort of 1997 to 2000 period, it was really more about the people um, because we all kind of moved around from company to company. And, uh, and we all, a lot of the reason why you would move to a different company was because you wanted to work with the people who were there, the guy who was the team leader, the woman who was running that department. Um, and we all kind of learned from each other in those ways because we were very much, I, 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 don't mean to, I don't mean to make this sound trite, but we were very much making it up as we went along. We were kind of inventing uh, the methods that we were using, some of which are still in use today and some of which have long since you know, been identified as epic failures. But yeah, I, I mean, it was, it, was more, it was as much about the people as it was about the companies. Now, when you and I met, uh, you were already in a role at Fjord uh, at that point. Um, but were there steps in between uh, that, that first multimedia company and then taking on that role at Fjord where you started to you know, form more of a solid idea, if you like, about what your role in design was going to be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was that first multimedia company and then, uh, and then I went to another company that was a, a very old school um, client server house. So they made client-server-based software, and uh, I helped establish their first internet-based uh, business unit. And then I went to an agency in Chicago uh, called Quest, which is no longer around, and that was where I, I ran my first design team. And uh, we were doing work for all kinds of clients, including the ones that I, that I mentioned before, pharmaceuticals and and healthcare and things like that as well as consumer facing websites and uh, you know it was, at, it was at the point where I started running where I started running a team managing a team that uh, that we started to more consciously put together the methods that we were putting together it was also around that time that uh, we started to have the proper divisions so we started to speak in terms of there was visual design. There was uh, which which also included some interactivity. It wasn't just about cutting graphics. There was interaction design, which was more task oriented, etc. There was information architecture, which was very much about um, building taxonomies, figuring out how information should be organized, and all of these disciplines would work together to make things go. You would need more or less of of them based on the project. I mean, all the things that seem really obvious to us now, we were just figuring out at the time, and where the sort of natural divisions were that people tended to have where the sort of natural um, bundles of skills fell and then after the crash 
um, I took some time off and went traveling and uh, came back and decided I didn't want to be in an agency anymore because uh, I had very lofty ideas about the uh, potential of the internet and I didn't feel like it was being realized by the agency world. And so uh, then luckily enough, the BBC rang and I went and spent three years working at the BBC in new media. And that was also a very interesting learning experience in terms of uh, BBC being a, a very a very large organization with a very long history and trying to bring to bear the lessons that I'd learnt in the very fast-moving agency side um, in this environment that was quite change-resistant, but also um, unbelievably well-established and with a, with a wealth and range of content, the likes of which I'd never seen. So I um, learnt an enormous amount there, and that was when it really became clear to me that uh, the thing I thought I could contribute the most in was not so much hands-on design, although I always loved it, but in affecting the translation between the people who do the hands-on design and the people on the business side who may or may not understand why they do the things that they do. And, uh, and that was when I started moving in the direction of what I suppose we now call strategy, which is also what I did at Fjord. Yes, yeah, so if we now, if you like, flash forward to, to where we are today and the kind of things that you're known for talking about very eloquently, I, I may add. I mean, I think your ability in a talk at a conference to simultaneously inspire and terrify people with some <laughs> things that you're able to paint a picture of for them, um, which, you know, to give people an idea if they haven't seen some of your, your talks, which in fact you can see on the, the mobileuserexperience.com site. We've got a couple of them up there, but you, know, you paint these visions of uh, households where the machines which are supposed to be assisting people are in conflict with each other and this kind of dystopian idea of, of how that could play out in a very bad way if we're not careful. Um, but you know, as you, uh, you know, have got to that point and you start to think further uh, ahead about how this is actually going to start to become commercialized and become real in people's lives. Um, you mentioned before that, if you like, tension between the role of, of agencies and the role of big companies and brands in how this stuff starts to come into the market and who shapes that vision. I mean, with the work that you're doing currently, um, are you getting a sense now that clients on the consulting side, the, the companies that you speak to in your workshops and your presentations, are ready to start thinking more seriously about what it means once technology starts to play a physical role in, in the worlds around us. Are people actively ready for that yet, or are we still in a, an experimental phase with it? Um, some of them are ready. I think the real challenge is that when we, when we start making things that fit into the physical world, uh, it requires a deeper shift in the way we think about those things. So companies, all companies, even and, and agencies as well, we, we're accustomed to thinking about the project you're working on. This is normal. This is natural. You are working on a thing. That thing has goals. You make that thing. You're finished with it. You move on to the next thing. But when you're talking about um, something like, you know, to take something from my, from my kitchen as battlefield example, you're talking about something like a, coffee maker that tries to keep the milk the milk cool in its milk compartment so that it doesn't go off as quickly. That sounds like a really straightforward, really simple thing that you could work on and design and build and then move on to the next thing. 
But what happens when that's in an environment with a click and grow plant pot that has a solar sensor that's trying to keep the plant alive? Those two things might be in conflict because the coffee maker that's sitting next to the plant pot, the coffee maker doesn't want sun because sun is bad for the milk. And the plant pot does want sun because sun is good for the plant. And, uh, and suddenly these two things might be in conflict with each other, which doesn't seem like a big deal, but it can become a really big annoyance if, for example, they can talk to the blinds on the window. Um, unforeseen conflicts or unforeseen uh, interactions between these machines that, to which we have given limited agency, uh, they can make quite big problems for humans. I'm not saying they're going to kill us necessarily, but... How much annoyance are, are we as people willing to cope with before we turn things off and, and stop, stop allowing them into our lives? So I think that the challenge is to get uh, organizations that make products, that, that are making robots, that are making technology, to think beyond their own walls and to think about how the things that they're making play with other things. Because it is that... Not, not necessarily interoperability, but that sort of communication, the ecosystem between multiple entities, between multiple objects, that is going to eventually create the environment that humans live in. And I think that's a really big challenge for agencies, for corporates, for everyone alike. And that's why I founded Superhuman, because uh, this is one of the, one of the big systemic challenges in, in our industries at the moment that I don't think can be addressed from inside a single corporate or a single agency or, or a single traditional construct of any kind. So I founded the company to, I suppose, try to attack these problems from as many different fronts as possible. So what are those missing skills that your your current company, Superhuman, is really targeting? If we think about this in terms of uh, a set of uh, design principles, if you like, you know, some some guiding lights for how we might start to do this more effectively as a community. It seems to me that what you're pointing to there is almost that we've become quite adept at understanding individual products and how they relate to individual consumers, you know, broadly speaking, user experience design. Yeah, that, that's what it is at its heart. But perhaps there's an entirely new challenge here when those things can have a physical impact in the world and when they have a set of relationships with potentially intelligent or varying degrees of intelligence of the other machines around them, that then there's a new set of design considerations which need to be taken into account when we think about designing these in a way that they live happily, not just with the humans in their lives, but with the other machines in their life as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced that it's an entirely separate skill set. I think, uh, I think it's more a different way of applying the skill set that we know. So if you, if you break it down, you think about, you know, how do we do great user experience design for individual products or individual services, be they digital or physical? Um, a big part of that is humility, to know that it's not about you, the designer, and what you think is good and what you like and, and what you love, but more knowing your place and and being in service of the people who will eventually be the actual users of this product, the, the normal people, as we sometimes say, are lay people. Um, it's, if you apply this to the physical world, it's just about taking that a step further and understanding not only your place as a designer in terms of the, the user being the more important party in the conversation, but 
the place of the thing that you are designing in the broader ecosystem of that user's life, um, which is an extension of the same kind of thinking, but it's a very challenging extension because you are essentially designing for chaos. We can't predict how people are going to use the things that we make. We have no governance or control. Well, only very limited governance or control over how people use the things that we make. Um, so it's very difficult to, to try to come up with a design or a set of interactions that's going to work in an almost unlimited breadth of context. Um, but these are kind of the challenges about applying the same, the same principles that we apply today in, and have applied historically in, in our, in our user experience design, but extending them out further into an ecosystem over which we don't necessarily have governance or control. I think that's the, the trick. And that's also the trick from, from the business's perspective. Um, because businesses tend to, make decisions about things over which they have control and they tend to assume that once they have made a decision they have the control to enforce that decision and when you are dealing with a, an ecosystem that's governed by a customer that you don't have control over you don't have control over the ecosystem either i think that really gets to the the heart of the challenge with this and it's a very tricky one because as you say potentially you're talking about an almost infinite set of variations that you might be designing for here i mean you can't predict whether someone is going to have you know, the the smart toaster the smart coffee machine and the roomba or whether they're going to have an entirely different combination of, of digital actors in their life so it's, it's very difficult to predict that and yet at some point i suppose we need to start getting uh, a little bit specific and we need to start looking at tangible examples to help to surface some of those more general principles that might be long lasting and might be applied and i suppose that was probably the the main motivation between by uh, behind how you ran the workshop that you did at mex last year um, where you started to put out some specific scenarios about what we might expect to appear within people's lives and get people thinking about the implications of that. Now, as I recall, you started with a notion of fear and shock and awe to get people thinking about that. But perhaps you could just give uh, the listeners a bit of an idea of, of what your starting point was and, and why you, you chose that. Yeah, it was super fun. Uh, we spent an hour planning crimes. Um, so the, the, group, the, the idea behind it was that when people think about um, when people think about designing robots or designing designing IoT or designing I know insert the insert the label of your choice, everybody gets really excited about the possibilities and about the positives and about how it's going to automate things, make life better, etc. And uh, and it's only later that, if at all, that they start to think about some of the possible negative implications of these things. And uh, and I thought, right, you know, we designers were a creative lot. Let's start right in by surfacing some of the some of the negatives. And so I, I asked people to, in their smaller breakout groups, to design a crime that would be largely carried out by uh, non-human actors, although obviously humans were planning it, and uh, and that would leave no witnesses. And we had a couple of heists, a couple of murders, a kidnapping. Um, and most of them used technology that's already in existence today or that's only 
very slightly more advanced than technology that's in existence today. And all of a sudden, it, we, we, we had already cracked open that Pandora's box of potentially ugly things that can happen. And we'd done it in a way that was clearly kind of over the top and jokey and fun. Let's plan crimes using IoT, using robots. Um, yeah, that, that was where we started. And I think it was just, uh, for me, it was a way of fast forwarding, not into a negative place, but kind of cracking open the, the box of problems right at the start so that we didn't ignore them until the last minute. Well, I think that's absolutely right. And it, it points to one of the the real uh, underlying um, considerations, if you like, that you have to have in mind going into this area as a designer, which came out of your talk as well, which is that really it, it's harder um, not to be creepy and intrusive with this stuff than it is... Um, you know, to, to avoid that situation that you have to take into account that these things, um, when they appear out of nowhere like this, do have the potential to feel mysterious and confusing and to be things which um, bring a, a sense of anxiety to people's lives and that we actually need to fight very hard to make sure that they end up having that positive impact. Um, you know, I think you, one of the findings which came out of your group, uh, which I found very interesting, comes back to that point of, uh, of mystery and how you strike that delicate balance between something which feels like it's giving you a set of superpowers and yet is still understandable and not something which creates a, a sense of confusion. When you think about some of the examples which are starting to, uh, roll out in the real world at the moment. What's your feeling about how they sit with that balance? And I know you and I were talking about some examples around the hotel industry um, in the run-up to this. I mean, are, are there things you're seeing there at the moment which are giving you a sense of whether or not companies are actually managing to, to strike that delicate balance yet? Yeah, um, there are actually. I mean, there's there's kind of two sides to that question. I have I I, I continue to think a lot in the last year since I, since I did those workshops about that idea of communicating with um, the human and, and in having a, having a dialogue with the human without, without that creating too much overhead for the human. But uh, I keep on saying the human as though I'm not one of them. That sounds kind of creepy in itself. Anyway, um, this idea of, uh, of, of technolo technologically enabled objects uh, being in dialogue with, with the people who own them or, who, or with whom they live. Um, that's something that I've continued to work on, but uh, the the hotel robots is an interesting example of the the range of opinion, I suppose. Uh, on the one hand, you've got the relay robot, which for those of you who don't know about it, it's made by Savioke, and uh, it's being used in hotels to deliver things like towels, toothbrushes, you know, the kind of stuff that you call down to the front desk for more of, but that doesn't um, that doesn't qualify as room service. And it doesn't qualify as room service, not, not least because it can't carry liquids, it can't carry hot things, it can't carry uh, stuff like that without breaking. But uh, its manufacturers, and indeed a, a lot of the hoteliers who use it, talk about it as um, a part of the overall ecosystem of what the hotel's services are and how they're carried out. So... They, they don't talk about this as something that will someday replace the room service waiter. They talk about it as something that, it, that, that replaces the 
need for a housekeeper to come up and disturb you with a towel. This I, and, and one of the things I find really interesting is that they talk about it as something that enhances your privacy. So this idea of having your towel or your toothbrush or whatever uh, delivered by a robot means that you don't have a human being seeing you in a vulnerable state, seeing you while you're naked about to get in the shower or exhausted and you've forgotten your toothbrush or what have you. Um, and I quite I think that's quite an interesting way to think about it, that the, the moments where you want only privacy, you don't necessarily want to deal with a person, being somehow distinct from moments where what you want is service. On the opposite end of the scale, you've got a place in, uh, in uh, Nagasaki called the Henna Hotel, which uh, I, I, apparently it translates, I don't speak Japanese, but apparently it translates as the Weird Hotel. And um, it is, in fact, weird and is made weird by the fact that it's staffed entirely by robots. There are no humans who serve you at any point if you're a guest of this place. I think, was this the one which you sent over the video for me to have a look at beforehand? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm going to link to this in the show notes so the listeners can go and take a look. Uh, it's uh, a particularly interesting watch, not least because the front desk, I believe, is staffed by a dinosaur. Yeah, there's a, there, there's a couple. I can't remember. The dinosaur is certainly the most memorable one. It's now blocked out the memory of the other ones. But there's, I think it's that there's three different kinds of robots at the front desk and you choose which one you want to engage with. And the dinosaur, obviously, is the, the obvious choice. So going back to what you were saying about the privacy element of this, because this is often something which comes up almost immediately as soon as you do any kind of workshop about this topic, people start to, to think about privacy because it's one of those hot button, very emotive sort of issues. And, and you made the point there about, well, actually, um, something like that relay robot potentially has a positive impact on that. But it made me think back to some of the things we were talking about at the start of this conversation, where we were talking about that role of anthropomorphism and how you balance something feeling human, feeling like something that you can communicate with versus something which is identifiably a robot and, and what suits um, the right kind of balance between those different ends of the spectrum, if you like, uh, and, and when that's most appropriate. I mean, overall, um, do you feel that we're going to see the greatest proportion uh, of things in this area tending towards some form of anthropomorphism? Or do you think the majority are actually going to be identifiably machine-like and, and deliberately so, so as to make that distinction in users' minds? I think we're going to see a lot of, well, I hope that we'll see things that are deliberately not human. Simply because we are, you know, I love technology and I'm a total optimist about it, but we are not even close to being able to build machines that can think like we do. Not least because we don't actually know how our cognition works. Um, it's not because technology is not good, it's because we're just not there yet. It's something that we don't understand. And so until we are there, I think it's important to have the distinction between what is what is a machine and what is a human? And one of the, one of the big triggers that I've identified over the years um, that can help make things not be creepy is the idea of who makes the decision. So a robot, a piece of technology, uh, might detect a pattern. So going back to the idea of a thermostat, might detect a pattern, might notice that you've been away um, I, tr I, I live in two places, and so one of them I'm away Monday through Friday most weeks. 
it might decide that I've been away Monday through Friday for the last three weeks. And so it might then decide that I'm going to be away Monday through Friday forever and set the temperature accordingly. The thing is that it's made that decision. It hasn't told me that it's taken that decision or the logic behind it. And so to me, it's just done something. And I might not be able to understand why. I would probably sit down and figure it out, but most people wouldn't bother. It, and why should they? Why should they have to sit down and do some sort of scientific experimentation to understand why their thermostat is doing what it's doing? Um, this idea of spotting patterns can be very useful to us, but I think that at least in the immediate term for, for important decisions, it should be the human that makes the decision or at least is notified that a decision, that a decision has been taken and that something's going to happen now. I think that kind of helps to demystify some of the roles of these of these entities in our lives to a great degree. And when that when those things are missing is when things start to feel really creepy. That point about notifications, I think, is very interesting because if you like, that kind of highlights the intersection between some of these physical robot actors, whatever form they might take, whether they're anthropomorphic, whether they're entirely machine-like, and the virtual digital world that we experience through the screens of our smartphones, our smartwatches, our tablets, because there's going to need to be some kind of connection there. Uh, if And I think it's, it's very sensible what you're suggesting here, this idea that we should be looking to these things to identify patterns, make suggestions, but then check and confirm with the, the human, with the user before taking any kind of um, action on it. But you get a, a new category, if you like, of, of interfaces there which are about how you surface those kind of recommendations, how you allow humans to take easy actions to make this a very assistive kind of process um, and, and to bring those kind of, bring that connection between the virtual world and, and the physical world. Um, what's your feeling on the state of design in that area currently? I mean, are you seeing any interesting examples of how we can surface these kind of notifications, uh, you know, how we can think about how that sits in the flow of of all of the digital content which we currently have in our lives already? Uh, not enough. I mean, that, that you've actually just hit upon the, the big thing that I'm, the big project that I'm putting together at the moment um, on, on the superhuman side of my life, uh, which is about these conversational interfaces and how they happen. Um, I mean, to be sure, there's some of this stuff is happening around the, um, the conversations in things like home hubs. So there are several... There are several companies out there who are trying to build um, or who are building uh, home hubs of varying kinds, whether they're with their software that's like a digital butler that will join up all of your things or whether that's an actual physical device that you plug everything into. Those companies are large and small, startups and massive corporates. And, uh, and there's some interesting conversations going on in there, but I, uh, I, I think that the conversation is broader than that and also needs to be more... Um, Flexible and modular. I mean, think about it this way. If you, uh, if you hire an assistant, if you, Merrick, hire an assistant, whatever kind of assistant you hire, whether it's a research assistant or a personal assistant or a nanny or whatever, um, that person, you will give them a brief and tell them, what, tell them what you want them to do. They already come to the table with their own idea of what they're able to do and how they do it, etc. And that's part of how you chose that person. Uh, once you've given them their brief and sent them on their way, at some point they will probably encounter something that's unexpected. 
something that you didn't, that's not part of the, the brief that you gave them, something that's not part of their experience. And a good assistant will then come to you and say, Merrick, right, so you said this and this, uh, something unexpected's happened over here. I think you might want me to do ABC. And then you say, that's a great idea, go ahead and do that. Or you can say, actually, I prefer you didn't do that, let me handle it. Or you might do something else entirely. But the thing is that you've got the option, and that's what a good assistant will do. A not-so-good assistant might just do whatever they feel like doing on that day and not tell you about it, and then three weeks later you figure out that, oh, I don't know, the research report that got sent to the client was something that you'd never seen or contained something that's really inappropriate, or that um, they cut down the tree in your garden without you asking them to. Uh, these are extreme examples, but you see my point, this idea of, Asking for clarification is something that we expect other humans to do when we work with them, but for some reason we don't design we don't design the machines that we are trying to give artificial intelligence to to do the same kinds of things that we expect real intelligences to do. And this is this is where I and some of my cohort are working at the moment is what is the what are the the linguistic vehicles, if you like. How, how, do, how, do, how do we want machines to convey this information? Are they going to send us text messages? Are there going to continue to be a million apps for everything? How is this going to work? That is, um, it is a big question that I and a lot of us are quite interested in at the moment and that um, I'm working with a few people on. Thinking back, actually, we did have a session at a previous MEX where the... Um, very smart uh, folks at top in Sweden um, started looking at that question in, in the context of uh, what is our expectation of communication in the digital environment, but specifically, what is our expectation uh, of how we might communicate with machines as opposed to person-to-person -person communications and starting to think about some of the language and, and the vocabulary of that, which I'm sure we've got the findings for that somewhere uh, on the mobileuserexperience.com site. So maybe I'll link to that in the, the show notes and send you over some details of that because it might be that there are a few seeds of uh, ideas there about uh, what shape um, that might take, which could help with your project as well. Yeah, that would be great. I'd really appreciate that. It's it's a It's a really... It's one of those super delicious, juicy problems that I do so love. <laughs> Indeed. The last thing really I wanted to ask you about as well is, is how um, organizations might take on this challenge. Because from what we've talked about so far, it's clear that um, this isn't just a, a simple evolution of things that we have been doing for a long time, tweaking a few things, you know, honing a few methods here and there that... This is a potentially a significant enough leap forward that actually we need new methods, new approaches for, for how we take on um, this whole brave new world of, uh, of robot experiences and the etiquette of how they interact with humans. And you've seen design from the client side. You've seen it from the agency side, both within larger agencies and within running uh, your own agency as well. What's your feeling about the, the structure of the organizations that are going to be tasked with taking on these kind of projects and, and whether or not in their current state um, they're suited for doing that or whether we actually need to think slightly differently about the kind of people we bring into these to solve these problems and the, the kind of organizational structures we use to do it. Uh, a lot of change, well, 
change is required on both sides, I suppose, and it, it varies from organization to organization. And that's one of the things that I'm spending the other half of my life doing with design talent is kind of helping organizations see how that they can, how they can um, how they can bring design thinking in that will actually achieve their goals, as opposed to just oh god, I've got to hire some UX people now. Um, so Design Talents is a, a new consultancy that you're working with? Yeah, sorry. It's a, it, it is a, a people-focused, well, it is a design-focused people consultancy. So it's design-led people consultancy. So we, uh, we, we are part recruitment firm and part consultancy. We, can, we help organizations figure out not just, uh, not just find individuals, but figure out what kinds of skill sets that they need, how to identify their skill sets, how to how to create the right um, experience that will drive the kind of culture that they need in order for their design organizations to be successful, um, which we think is important because obviously uh, businesses have started to realize that experience is a critical success factor, and so they're starting to hire in designers. But uh, as we all know, it can be very difficult to put together a successful design team. and. Uh, you need somebody, you need people with the experience doing that to help you do it if you've never done it before. Um, but that's not necessarily answering your question yet. I, in, in answer to your question, I think there's two ways that organizations need to think differently in order to be successful in this kind of robot-connected object world. Uh, one is to be more open inside their walls. So especially when we talk about large manufacturers, companies like Sony or Samsung, uh, that make lots of different consumer electronics. Um, they work in silos. They have product teams that work in certain areas that don't necessarily speak to one another. And uh, it seems like an obvious thing, but it's not an easy thing to do in an organization that if you're making connected objects, all of those people need to be talking to each other. Because otherwise, you're going to wind up with 17 different paradigms for experiences. And although it's unlikely that anybody's going to have every every bit of electronics in their home from one manufacturer, at least you want to have a predictable experience that bespeaks your brand as a manufacturer and that goes well beyond the logo. So that's one level where, where openness is, uh, is increasingly critical. And the other is to think beyond their own walls. And this is the more difficult one. Um, I think it's a matter of, it's an extension of something that we've been saying in the design world for a long time, which is that you, large corporate, as much as you want to be, are no longer in control of your brand or of how it's used or of how people use your products. People will do what they like. People are natural-born hacker monkeys, and uh, we will do unexpected things with what we are given, and that organizations need to let go and accept that humans will do unexpected things with their products and also take that as a positive thing. And that is a matter of... It sounds weird to say it, but organizational confidence, if you like. It's a matter of really understanding where the value is that the organization brings to its customers, to the people at the other end, and focusing on that value and not being paranoid or grabby about the things that sit around it. So if the value that you bring to your customers is you bring them the absolute best televisions that give them the best picture, the best sound quality, the best whatever, um, that's great then stop being paranoid about somebody, about, about hoarding all of the data that you have about how people watch programs because maybe the data about how people watch programs could be fed forward 
to another service that could then further enhance their experience on your product, if you see what I mean. I do. And it, it seems like um, you know, a good point to, to draw the conversation to a close well, because I think it's quite a, a positive message to send on this about uh, organizations being willing to have that kind of confidence to know what they're good at and to empower their users to, to use uh, the, the kind of services which are expert in their field and allow them to, to play nicely together. Um, so it's been intriguing to, to talk this over with you, Louisa, and uh, you know, I'm very grateful to you taking the time. Um, I'd encourage people, if they've not yet seen them, to go and take a look at some of your talks, both at MEX and at other events, which we'll link to in the show notes. Uh, and I'm wondering, you know, what we might do next on this as well. I think uh, we've had a, a pretty good high point with your previous MEX creative workshops with the uh, the planning, the, the master crime using uh, IoT. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to be fascinated to see what you manage to come up with uh, next time you come back. I know, me too. I have no idea. <laughs> look, thanks for taking the time. It's been a great conversation and uh, I'm going to look forward to, um, to those future sessions. Always a pleasure, Mag. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Louisa Heinrich. I found it quite eye-opening personally. And don't forget that you can find links to all of the things that we talk about and all of the references that we mention in the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. So who remembers the launch of 3G and all those glitzy product launches from handset manufacturers where they showed us how 3G was going to mean that we could all be uh, making video calls as we went skydiving. Well, our user story this week, which is part of an ongoing series looking at the real ways that people use mobile technology in their lives, uh, takes a look at how video calling is actually starting to become a part of some users' lives in 2016. Unfortunately, it's not a story about skydiving, but the rather more prosaic surroundings of London transport. Let me take you to the outskirts of West London and the top deck of a London bus. This is where the tube network ends and the suburban sprawl starts to spread out towards the countryside. And up there on the top deck of this bus are two boys. I'd say one was about 16 perhaps, and the other maybe a little bit younger. And they obviously were acquainted with each other, but maybe didn't know each other too well from the sound of their conversation. One of them was telling the other about where he came from and how many brothers and sisters he had. So there was a familiarity, but they perhaps weren't necessarily the, the best of friends. And they were talking, as often seems to be the case with people of this age, when you see them out and about these days, about phones. And it all seemed to centre around iPhones. Very little else came into the conversation. What phone do you have? One of them, they asked the other. Oh, the iPhone 5. Yeah, the iPhone 6 Plus is rubbish, isn't it? came the response. And they started talking about a friend of theirs, Michael, apparently his name was. Yeah, Michael got the S5, a Galaxy, 
and he likes it. He likes it. They said almost like a, there was a disbelief there that that was even possible. So the phone chat carries on for a few more minutes as the bus lurches its way through the suburban streets. And then all of a sudden the other one said, what are you doing? Oh, hang on. I'm taking a FaceTime call, came the response. And there his companion sat on the bus having a FaceTime call, full earshot of everyone else on the bus for about a minute or so. And it was almost as if the environment played no role whatsoever in this. He was completely comfortable having this FaceTime chat out loud on the top deck of the bus and interrupted the conversation with the person that he was with so he could do it. The only slight difference, perhaps, was that his tone of voice seemed to change just slightly. It became a little bit more announcer-like as he uh, had this conversation. There was a, a discernible change, perhaps, in his tone, which surprised me a little bit. But there he was having this conversation on the uh, the top deck of the bus. And it made me think, of course, about all of the many wise analysts, probably myself included, who for the last however many years have been shaking our heads and talking about, oh, well, video calling is never really going to happen on mobile devices. Who's going to walk down the street having a video conversation or uh, who's going to be brave enough to have these kind of video calls on public transport? You know, it's the sort of thing that you might see happening when people are sat on the sofa and they're doing Skype calls and uh, talking to family members, but it's never going to happen out there in the real world to any great extent. And yet here, defying all of uh, our wise analyst-like predictions, you start to see things like these FaceTime calls happening. And it makes you think, well, perhaps as behavior starts to evolve and people become so comfortable with these smart devices in their lives, we've missed something here. And that, in fact, it was maybe other things like the latency that was in the network or the lack of a reliable connection, which were holding back these kind of behaviors, which although for the people who are inventing the technologies and responsible for rolling out these kind of products, they couldn't quite get their head around because it didn't fit into the sort of etiquette of how they'd been brought up or the way their generation worked. The younger generation is in fact comfortable doing these things. And now that the technology factors are starting to fit into place, we're starting to see an uptick in these kind of behaviors. There was another example I came across recently as well. This time we're in central London, not too far from UCL, one of the big universities in the middle of London. And there's a female student. I'd guess she was probably in her early 20s. And I'm walking along down the street and she is in the middle of a FaceTime video chat uh, and nearly walks into me. So I swerve to avoid her. And now my interest is kind of peaked and I watch as she walks off in the other direction, not really even having noticed that she had nearly uh, walked into me while she was having this call. And what she was doing was holding out her phone in front of her. So she's talking on the headphones, but she's using the video camera of her iPhone to broadcast over FaceTime to someone in another country because I can hear her explaining, yeah, this is London. And she's doing a sort of panoramic sweep around, showing whoever it is who's on the end of this FaceTime call what London is like. 
So what has had to happen on the technology side and in user behavior to make these kind of scenarios possible? Well, of course, on the technology side, as I mentioned before, the networks have had to improve to the extent where it is realistic to expect that real-time video calling is actually going to work. And on cellular networks, for all the talk of how this was going to happen over 3G, realistically, it's only in the last year or two in big metropolitan areas that it's become viable to expect that video calling is going to work in a reliable way. On the behavioral side, I think what we're seeing here is an evolution of the etiquette of how people are present in their physical surroundings. And we're reaching this sort of tipping point where actually the expectation is that it is your digital presence, where you are present digitally, which takes priority over where you are present physically. If you look at those two examples of the student who nearly walked into me or the person on the top deck of the bus who's quite happy to conduct a video call despite the fact that everyone uh, around them can hear and see what is going on, I think that's the underlying behavior that we're seeing here is that actually devices and digital has become so pervasive uh, in their lives that they now feel it's acceptable to prioritize those kind of digital connections in real time despite the particular circumstances that they find themselves in physically. And that is an interesting trend in behavior to watch evolve, because once that tipping point is reached, I think this goes beyond what we're seeing around these kind of communication behaviors with FaceTime and actually potentially starts to influence many other areas of how we use digital as well. That's it for this edition of Mech's Design Talk. Don't forget those show notes in the podcast section at mobileuserexperience.com and also to share the episode with friends who you think might be interested by asking them to search for Mech's Design Talk in their podcast player or pointing them to the site at mobileuserexperience.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.